0: We have another story here of African countries seeking to process and refine metals in their home countries again. So the chorus grows louder. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli and it continues to be interesting. I'm all over this story here where a lot of these commodity metal producing countries are seeking to process the concentrate for these metals in their home countries. And so this continues to be interesting. We have a story from Reuters here. Africa gears up to keep more of the profits from lithium boom, and this is via mining.com. Lithium-rich African countries, including Zimbabwe and Namibia, are trying to develop processing and refining industries to capture more of the profits of global demand for the battery material. So I think we heard from Zimbabwe before, I don't recall Namibia being in the mix, so almost another country here in the mix, as the auto industry shifts towards EVs, electric vehicles spurred by possible bans on fossil fuel cars beginning at the end of the decade, lithium prices and demand have soared. China, the world's top lithium refiner and a leading producer, dominates the supply chain, but Western governments and international companies are trying to challenge that and see Africa's lithium reserves as an opportunity. And here is Namibia's Mines Minister, Tom Awindo who told Reuters in an interview, quote, we are saying to ourselves, if you have got the minerals that everybody wants now, you need to make sure that at least you probably mine those minerals differently and not in the usual manner. We are going to insist that all lithium mined within the country has to be processed in the country. And we have another quote. This is from Zimbabwe in December. And we reported this story when it happened And they imposed a ban on raw lithium exports, a measure aimed at stopping the smuggling of of lithium ore and spurring mines to process in the country. And Winston Chitando, the country's mining minister, told Reuters We made plans to only allow the export of concentrates. Because of the ban, other investors have come in wanting to mop up lithium ores and develop them to concentrate stage. So, pretty fascinating to watch this story unfold. And it speaks to this whole idea, like people talk about inflation being sticky, and it's really hard to disagree on an anecdotal basis, because I don't know if you've tried to book a plane ticket anytime recently. I don't know if you've tried to book a Airbnb for your summer travel anytime recently, but it's not cheap, okay? It is not cheap. And, you know, I don't see groceries coming down. Energy, I mean, they just reopened the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And, you know, this is with oil at, let's just take a quick look. Oil, according to CNBC, Brent crude is at $85.72. And that's down after the U.S. announced crude reserve release from the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And West Texas Intermediate is at $79.08. You know, and here's nat gas, admittedly very low from where it was in December, when it was $7, now it's at $2.55. So that has definitely come down. It is up 6% on the day. And, you know, gold is at $1,875. I mean, we're only about $50 below where we were at those recent highs. Copper is at $4.08. Where are these low prices going to come from other than an economic crisis? Like I, you know, that's the only kind of source of disinflation that, I can see, well, you know, and I'm just some podcast host, but I just don't see where this lower prices are going to come from. It's not going to come out of the metals from Africa because you're not going to be able to buy those metals at the rock bottom price. You're going to have to buy the concentrates. And that to me makes it sound like the auto manufacturers are going to have to pay more or anything that requires, say, lithium. And is lithium getting cheaper? Not anything that I've heard. And apparently lithium is quite a popular metal in many of the devices that we use. So I'm just wondering where and how uh, this all happens. And as they say, war is inflationary as well. So it seems to me that war is not, you know, disappearing either. So we have a really interesting program. We're going to follow up on what we did last week. We have four more speakers from the AME Roundup Conference with some very nice, again, kind of short and sweet interviews. We have Newmont's Kaven Herji, who is part of the Sustainability and External Relations Team for North America, and he talked to Henry Lazenby. We have Kai Hoffman, founder and managing director of SOAR Financial Partners, And his assessment of the Oran Inc. Index showing that financing levels are at their highest in a long time. We have Rick Rule on why silver markets will defy predictions, and he has some just kind of sage common sense advice on how to invest in silver. And we have Barracks Andy Verst who talks about the critical shortage, not of critical metals, but of geoscientists. And so that also is an issue. So a very interesting buffet as I said last week, of speakers here and a lot of ideas just to chew on here. Taking a look at the markets, I mean, it seems like this inflation print, it seems like markets don't know what to do. It still feels like it's waiting for a direction. We did feel like we stalled out there. So the question is, is is that a break before we go higher? Or is that the first signs of us going down? That is unclear. And also coming up next week, we have the Global Mining Symposium that is on February 22nd, 2023. So that is a week from tomorrow, and that will feature Catherine Boggs, chairperson of Hecla Mining Company, Luca Giacovazzi, chief executive officer of Wailu Metals, who was all over the news last year, and Randy Smallwood, president and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals, and chairperson of the Board World Gold Council. So another all-star lineup here. So this takes place in eight days. Just go to events.northernminer.com to register your interest, or become a sponsor. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, U.S. seeks critical mineral packs with Japan, UK, to curb China. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The U.S. government is exploring narrowly focused trade packs on critical minerals with Japan and the U.K. In addition to talks with the European Union, the latest salvo in its push to counter Chinese influence in key sectors, officials familiar with the matter, said the U.S. is looking to create a, quote, critical minerals buyers club, end quote, with allies like the EU and Group of Seven, the U.S. officials said, speaking on condition of anonymity. The move would ensure the bloc is not reliant on China for critical minerals, particularly as the countries look to build out renewable energy packs, the officials said. So-called rare earth elements and minerals including lithium and cobalt have assumed huge strategic importance because of their role in electric vehicle technology, defense electronics, and other uses. It's funny to me, and again, maybe I'm just out on a limb on this, how our biggest concern as a society is whether we can build electric vehicles or not i mean i'm just kind of amazed and you know this is all done in the name of the environment but we're basically saying we need to put a whole bunch of metal and a whole bunch of batteries we need to create a whole bunch of stuff in order to save the environment i mean like i was saying last episode like we better be right about this cuz this is going to have a huge environmental cost i mean and then we'll get back to this article but i don't hear anybody talking about the environmental cost of the green transition i mean i, I like should we be building electric vehicles at all if we're really concerned like the, we're not questioning the underlying assumption that maybe we need to think of different ways of getting ourselves around and maybe that's too far out for a lot of people but I just think it's worth having the conversation at the very least. Continuing on, especially worrisome to the U.S. and its allies is China's geological fortune in having supplies within its borders and its moves to lock up agreements with other producers, potentially cutting off U.S. access in the event of a crisis with Beijing. The deals, while aimed at China, could also make the countries eligible for benefits from the Inflation Reduction Act, soothing a key irritant over industrial incentives. The White House did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The Treasury declined a request to comment. The development adds Japan and the UK to the list of countries where the U.S. is seeking critical mineral packs. The U.S. has already been in talks with the EU over such a deal. And scrolling down, a pact that clears the way for benefits under the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, would help soothe tensions with Europe, which has complained that the provision freezes out American partners. Biden's administration has responded by pledging cooperation and encouraging European allies to pass their own domestic subsidies. This is one of the most promising ways to go forward, German economy minister Robert Habeck told Bloomberg TV in an interview Monday, referring to a possible agreement on organizing a market for critical minerals. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Like, if you don't like our subsidies, then why don't you create your own subsidies? But... I mean, it just seems like so many of these institutions and this – there has been a free trade mantra that has been beating for decades that is really being undone here in the last five or six years without too many questions about whether that's a good idea. And maybe it is. I mean, free trade was pretty controversial. But again, it seems like just another undiscussed topic. I don't hear people saying – talking about – you know, whether we should do free trade or not. But maybe that debate's already been had and maybe the decisions are being made. So anyways, uh, and also on the rare earth beat, U.S. rare earth firm ropes in former top diplomat Pompeo, a strategic advisor. So this is Reuters via mining.com. So Mike Pompeo now is a strategic advisor for USA rare earth. And Pompeo had a quote, And he said, quote, USA rare earth supply is critically important to reduce foreign dependencies while creating additional American jobs, end quote. So the U.S. is starting to get pretty serious about their rare earths. Meanwhile, in Malaysia, I mean, this is another version of the international news, isn't it? Looking at resources, increasingly so too, as they start to take more geopolitical importance in an age of increasing scarcity. Linus's Malaysia rare earths plant faces part closure as regulator keeps curbs. This is also Reuters via mining.com. Malaysian regulators renewed an operating license for Linus rare earths unit, the Australian company said on Tuesday, but they retained conditions that will prevent Linus from importing and processing rare earths concentrate after July 1st. So this is kind of a different situation, isn't it, than Namibia and Zimbabwe, which want the processing... In-country, I guess because rare earths are so dirty, Malaysia wants to get rid of them. The processing in-country, Linus, the world's biggest producer of rare earths outside of China, will need to close the cracking and leaching part of its rare earth processing plant if the conditions are not removed before then, it said in a securities filing to the stock exchange. Malaysia's government has raised concerns about radiation levels from the process of cracking and leaching. And we have a quote from Malaysia's science, technology, and innovation minister, Chang Li Kang, who said, quote, Linus is not allowed to carry out any activities that will produce radioactive waste in Malaysia after July 2023. That sounds pretty serious, but two International Atomic Energy Agency reviews found the plant to be low risk and compliant with relevant regulations, Linus noted. And Chief Executive Amanda Lakaz said in a statement, after 10 years of safe operation in Malaysia, we are disappointed that the conditions that were applied to our 2020 operating license remain. We will now proceed with administrative and legal appeals to ensure that Linus is treated fairly and equitably as a foreign direct investor and a significant employer and contributor to the Malaysian economy. I mean, I'm kind of back to this idea, like the West can't have it both ways, where we're going to enforce international... Agreements when it's convenient and, you know, enforce free trade and WTO when it's convenient for us. And when it's not, we're not going to. And then complain to countries like Malaysia and then say, hey, we're going to take you to the WTO or whatever the institution may be. Under its new permit, Linus will be able to continue other parts of processing until March 2026. And really, the processing of rare earths is where the rubber meets the road. As they say, like, rare earths are not that rare. It's the expertise that's required in processing them, which apparently is dominated by China. I wonder what they're going to do with this expertise. It's quite interesting. So it o- it almost doesn't add up, frankly, this story. I don't understand. Is Malaysia that concerned with radiation levels? I mean, maybe. But it does make you wonder if other issues are at work. Freeport McMorin cuts forecast after floods damage Indonesia's Grasberg mine. This is also Reuters via mining.com. So we just listened to part of the freeport McMoran call. And as the CEO was saying, mining is a tough business. And he was just reporting how everything seemed to be going very beautifully at Grassburg. And here we are like a, two weeks later and floods are damaging the Grassburg mine. freeport McMoran has cut its first quarter copper sales forecast after heavy rains and landslides shuttered operations at its flagship Grasberg mine in Indonesia over the weekend, with the mine not expected to be back online until the end of the month. The temporary shutdown is the latest in a string of extreme weather-related disruptions to rock the mining industry amid the changing global climate. It's pretty interesting the way this is being reported. Amid the changing global climate, interesting phrasing here, while there were no casualties, Freeport said late Sunday it had to free 14 employees trapped in an office building because of, quote, significant rainfall and landslides, end quote, at Grasberg, the world's largest gold mine and second largest copper mine. So they were trapped in an office building. That is quite something. Mud flow damaged Grasberg's concentrate processing plant as well as part of the road leading to the mine, Freeport said. So pretty interesting. And in a related story, Anglo CEO warns extreme weather threatens global mine supplies. This is Bloomberg this time via mining.com. Anglo-American warned that global commodity supplies will remain vulnerable to severe disruptions, including from extreme weather that's having a growing impact on operations around the world. The mining industry has been struggling to hit production targets hurt by everything from floods and droughts to creaking infrastructure and political instability. Those setbacks are exacerbating already tight supplies in several metals and minerals at a time when demand in top consumer China is expected to rebound as the country emerges from COVID-19 lockdowns. And scrolling down, he said, quote, the effects of climate change are very real and we are seeing it. There were weather impacts on operations pretty much all over the globe. And I think that will continue to happen. So pretty interesting from Anglo-American CEO. Duncan Wanblad. And finally, we have some action in the gold and silver space. B2 Gold to buy Sabina Gold and Silver for $824 million. And so, interesting takeover over there. And finally, just a few headlines here. Cobalt battery-powered boom has turned to bust. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And finally, just a couple of headlines here. Canada to not permit seafloor mining... Without rigorous regulations, this is Reuters via mining.com. So we're hearing more and more about mining the ocean seabed. The Canadian government said on Thursday it would not allow mining in its domestic ocean seabeds without, quote, a rigorous regulatory structure and that the need for natural resources does not override Ottawa's environmental commitments. Seafloor nodules contain critical minerals used in batteries that are needed to fuel the world's transition to clean energy, but trawling the seafloor for them could disrupt ecosystems. Quote, Canada does not presently have a domestic legal framework that would permit seabed mining and, in the absence of a rigorous regulatory structure, will not authorize seabed mining in areas under its jurisdiction, natural resources and oceans and fisheries ministers said in a joint statement. So seabed mining is on hold. And final headline here, Russian metal makes up 42% of LME warehouses' stocks, according to a report. And this is also Reuters via mining.com. The LME on Thursday noted an expected rise in the share of Russian metal of the stocks in its warehouses, making up 42% of total stocks at 152,000 tons, but remaining off historical highs. So that is quite something. It is not even at historical highs when it is comprising of 42% of total stocks. Last year, the LME decided not to ban Russian metal from being traded and stored in its system because a significant portion of the market still planned to buy the country's metal in 2023. You wonder if it's just because, you know, the amount of Russian metal in the LME is so significant that it might just cause too much, put too much sand in the gears. I mean, look at this. A new monthly report by the LME showed that as of January 31st, Russian aluminum amounted to 41% of the total, while copper was 94% and nickel was 16%. And we have a quote from the LME. The LME's conclusion based on market feedback that Russian metal continues to be consumed is supported by data on the outflow of Russian metal from LME warehouses. The LME believes that the evolution of Russian stocks is in line with the market trends as anticipated. You know, if I was to read between the lines here, It kind of tells me the LME simply cannot do without Russian metal. That is my interpretation of this story. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. But before we turn to the metals, let's just take a look at the 10-year bond, which we always like to look at here. The U.S. 10-year treasury bond is at 3.752%. That is 0.1% higher. And it looks like, you know, we haven't been at levels like this in a couple of months and is getting sort of like oil at $85 there, Brent crude. You know. It's flirting with 90 and just kind of below 100. That's kind of how the 10-year bond feels right now. What happens if we go back up to 4%? Interesting. So turning to our metals, and again, thank you to mining.com for providing us with these prices. And as it stands, gold is at $1,859.96 per ounce. That is $13 lower than last week. Silver is also lower at $21.96 per pound. That is $0.31 lower than last week. And platinum is at $959 even. And that is $23 lower than last week. And palladium is at $1,573.36 per ounce. That is $15 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is also lower at $4.04 per pound. That is $0.07 lower than last week. Lead is a penny lower at $0.95 per pound. Nickel is at $12.57 per pound. That is $0.63 lower than last week. And tin is also lower at $12.50 per pound. That is $0.50 lower than last week. Cobalt is at $17.35 per pound. That is, that is is $1.25 lower than last week. And zinc is $0.11 cents lower at $1.41 per pound. Taking a step back, it seems like the metals across the board have taken a break similar to the stock market. It's as if the risk-on trade has taken a pause and even started to consider the possibility of a risk-off trade. And we don't see too many deviations from that. I mean, everything is basically falling in line here. So the markets are moving together and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have three interviews from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference as well as one more from AME Roundup. And in this series of interviews, Frick Ells and Henry Lazenby interviewed Newmont's Kavan Herji of Newmont's Sustainability and External Relations team for North America, as well as Kai Hoffman, founder and managing director of SOAR Financial Partners, and also Rick Rule, CEO of Rule Investment Media And it barracks Andy Verst, and this one takes place at AME Roundup. So great variety in these conversations. They're short and sweet, and I will introduce each one before they begin. up, first we have Kayvan Hirji of Newmont's Sustainability and External Relations Team for North America. And this is at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in January, and he is interviewed by Northern Miner senior reporter Henry Lazenby.
1: Thank you for joining the Northern Miner, coming to you live from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Joining me is Kayvan Hirji, a Sustainability and Social Engagement Officer at Newmont. Thank you very much for joining me.
2: Yeah, no problem, Henry. So I work on the Sustainability and External Relations team for Newmont, uh, covering North America. So happy to be here today.
1: Excellent. So, and sustainability obviously underpins everything that Newmont does in North America. Can you please walk us through some of the key points as to how sustainability really is implemented at your operations?
2: Yeah, certainly. So Newmont is, you know, the world's largest gold mining company. We acquired Goldcorp, a Vancouver-based company. in 2020, or 2019, and uh, that was about a $10 billion acquisition that made us the largest gold mining company in the world. We operate in nine countries around the world, and if you operate in nine countries around the world, it's really important to have a standardized approach when it comes to sustainability and working with communities and ensuring that you're upholding your commitments to communities and, and maintaining a good reputation in the mining industry. You know, the good thing about Newmont is we've been in operation for over 100 years. Over that time, you know, like all companies, we've made mistakes, but we're really proud of the fact that we've learned from those mistakes. We've come a long way. And today we actually have ranked first for transparency on the S&P 500 and first or co-leader on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for the, the seventh consecutive year. So we're really proud of where we're at today and, and the way that we really embed and integrate sustainability into every function of the business.
1: Yeah, forgive me for asking the obvious, but why is ESG
2: principles really important to a company of Newmont's caliber? Yeah, I mean, for Newmont, you know, our our purpose, why we do business to provide value to host communities, and then obviously, you know, have success as an operating business as well. In today's environment, you know, social license is so important. And if you don't have social license to operate, that is a business risk. So it's a business imperative to ensure that you're actually providing value to host communities. You know, you have social acceptance to operate. Uh, and that can actually de risk a project and an operation long term, and it, it really is a business imperative. Mm. And then, lastly, I just wanted to touch on the United Nations
1: Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP. Yeah. Um, how does that inform Newmont's uh, activities these days, since it kind of uh, seems to be a deepening of the ESG concerns?
2: Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, sustainability underpins every function of the business, right? Whether that's supply chain and procurement, human resources, the exploration team, operations, finance. We really try to integrate it into every function. In the Canadian operating environment and operating environments around the world, UNDRIP, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, has really prevailed as a as a governing framework when it it comes to working with communities and recognizing indigenous title and indigenous rights. Uh, In Canada, we've seen that play out through the, the federal government actually passing the UNDRIP Act, and then provinces across the country also looking towards their own implementation. With BC, for example, passing the DRIPA legislation, which is basically implementing legislation for UNDRIP as well, and that's been followed by the DRIPA Action Plan. For us, you know, recognizing rights and title in Canada of Indigenous communities is not only recognized statutorily through the DRIPA Act or UNDRIP Acts, it's also recognized in jurisprudence and case law, right? So, you have a duty as a business to work with communities. Now, in theory, that kind of covers off the theory side, but on practice, what does that actually look like? In it. It really comes down to building strong bilateral relationships with communities, um, understanding and aligning cultural values, integrating a community's perspective and their knowledge into the development of a project and and operation, and really essentially creating a shared vision together. And that can really de-risk a project and ensure that Newmont is delivering on that fundamental purpose of, of providing value to host communities. Excellent. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Cheers.
0: And coming up next, we have Kai Hoffman, founder and managing director of Soar Financial Partners, and he shares his assessment of the Orin Inc. Index, showing financing levels are at their highest in a long time and that market trends for battery metals are particularly strong. And he is interviewed again by Northern Miner senior reporter Henry Lazenby at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference.
1: Thank you for joining the Northern Miner, coming to you live from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Joining me now is Kai Hoffman, MD of SOAR Financial, which also manages the Oren Inc. Index, which tracks junior finance activity. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Henry, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Good to see you.
1: All right. So let's dive right in. What are some of the latest trends that you are seeing with the Oren Inc. Index? Uh, It has
3: picked up tremendously. Financing activity has picked up. We're reaching decent and healthy levels again in in the sector. We're seeing bigger deals happening. Brokered and uh, bought deals are happening. Uh, Brokered bought deals are at 49-week high, pretty much highest of the last 12 months. Uh, Index is at 92 points. Keep in mind, we set the index benchmark at 100 back in January 2011. So when the market was ultra-frothy, there was lots happening and going on. So reaching 92 this week is a really good indicator. It's the first time we've reached that level in a long, long time as well. So looking forward to more financings in the sector. We've seen a few already announced this morning and yesterday, but we'll see how that goes. But the the momentum is very positive right Mm. now.
1: This conference heard yesterday that the financing windows are open. What would you say informs this opinion?
3: Just activity. I think confidence is back. 1950 or 1930 gold, uh, of course, helps. It's always a leading indicator. But also Fed activity. It's a big, big factor in our sector. I personally underestimated it 12 months ago when the Fed started hiking rates. Because March 16th, first Fed rate hike, and we look at the index, shut, closed, done. No more financing activity. The money just disappeared. And that money is coming back now because the fed is slowing down the rate hikes are slowing down we're chatting on monday so on thursday i think is a fed meeting and we'll probably see another 25 basis point hike and then we'll have to see what the language is and around that hike to see where the fed will take things if they decide okay this is great we'll slow down maybe one more 25 basis point hike i think the bets could be off in our sector i've heard on the floor from from a company actually that their banker is just waiting for the fed comments to announce a bought deal because mm. they don't want to be caught off guard on Thursday or Friday morning when they are in the middle of a deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's something to watch this week. Are there any other major trends that you're tracking at this time?
3: Battery metals, you have to look at. Uh, Lithium is catching a massive bid, $76,000 a ton. That's a ridiculous price for it. That will probably come down, but the the stocks are flying. Anybody who stakes a project in the same uh, James Bay region right now in Quebec, stock automatically goes up 30%. doesn't matter what it is. You could probably just get some, uh, you know, anything, moose pasture, right? So that's a trend I'm looking at. I'm not playing it, but it's happening. It's another hype sector you got to be careful of, or at least be, inform yourself. and and track it because it's also attracting a lot of money.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so these days you're based out of Germany. Um, How is the mining sector there and what's the interest in the Canadian market from over there?
3: Interesting question. It it is fairly high. You wouldn't expect it. But in in Germany, we had hyperinflation in the 20s. We've been burned. Like We had wheelballows full of money to to go take to the bakery. So gold has always been sort of imprinted in our DNA mining stocks on the speculation side, but the gold aspect was always huge. So there's always interest. And uh, I, I would bet the house on on the fact that back in 2015, when the market was dead, there was no market really, that that little bit of volume on the venture, a lot of it was European slash German investors. So th- there is interest, they're active in the market, they follow the stories. For some reason, they like to get promoted to. (laughs) They follow the the hype stories as well. They want to make a quick buck. It's mind-blowing. But uh, there's definitely interest. It's an interesting
1: market. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Henry. Much appreciated. My pleasure.
0: And also, coming up, investor Rick Rule is interviewed by Mining.com executive editor Frick Ells at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And Rick Rule is CEO of Rule Investment Media and he gives his views on the silver market and the best way to make fact-based decisions and really, and the best way to make money in these kind of markets. So coming from a guy with a lot of experience.
4: I'm joined by Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media. Rick's experience in the resource investment industry is deep as it is wide. I'm lovely to talk to him about gold and silver and uranium and everything else that you can find in the ground.
5: (laughs) Certainly a pleasure. I've been a 50-year beneficiary of the Northern Miner, so this is an honor for me.
4: Yeah, excellent, great. You, uh, I just listened to your your gold panel. You said that in the not-too-distant future, gold is going to hit an all-time high in real terms. Now, before the current kind of inflation story, that would have been around two thousand four hundred
5: dollars. Where where are we now? Well, I think what I hope I said was yeah. that I expected in this year, right, for gold. To hit all time highs in nominal terms. Oh, nominal, okay. And I expect it to hit all time highs in real terms if we don't, as a society, both the United States and Canada, control debt and deficits and negative real interest rates. If, on the other hand, uh, our Congress and your Parliament acted reasonably, a low probability from my point of view, uh, (laughs) then gold would be derailed.
4: Right, I see.
5: Uh, I also want to
4: talk about silver. I know you had a very successful seminar on uranium last year. You're doing one on silver this year. I always feel that silver is kind of overlooked in the way that people do not realize that more than 50% of demand is from the industrial sector and that silver plays a huge role in the green energy transition. Is that why you think uh, silver uh,
5: needs some investigation? Really for three reasons. The people who invest in silver or speculate tend to do it for narrative reasons without understanding too much about the silver market. We addressed that in the uranium boot camp because uranium investors suffered the same faults. We wanted in the course of the boot camp, and I like in the course of public presentation, to talk more about the dynamics of the market so that investors and speculators can take action that are more fact based than narrative based. Okay. So in, in the silver boot camp, we want to talk about, as you would suggest, the uses for silver. Yeah. The fact that unlike gold, which goes from a hole in the ground called a mine to a hole in the ground called a vault, yes. that some silver goes away. It's used as a reflective in solar properties, it's used as a germicide. It has a lot of uses. In fact, we estimate that over a billion ounces a year get used in fabrication activities. Okay, well. And you need to consider that. We also have learned that most silver speculators don't understand very much about the supply of silver. They believe that silver comes from silver mines, whereas about 80% of primary supply comes from as a byproduct of other metals mining. Yeah. We think, too, that the silver investor ought to understand the dynamics both of the physical silver market and of the futures market. The relationship between good delivery silver, out of system silver, and the incredible volumes of silver that trade in the futures market. We want, too, for them to understand how silver mines and silver companies are made, so that they invest in silver mining companies that, as an example, have silver, as opposed to merely look for silver. (laughs) So all of those things, and I agree with you, I think, by the way, that uh, silver, for many investors is a very overlooked, albeit complex, topic.
4: Are you uh, willing to make a prediction on the silver price? I'm not.
5: I'm more comfortable with the gold price because the variables around silver are greater. As an example, nobody really knows how much above ground available not available for the delivery silver exists in the world how much is owned in india pakistan bangladesh and sri lanka where there's cultural familiarity with silver uh, so it's much more difficult right. with silver than with gold okay. to make anything approaching an accurate price prediction right what i can tell you is this i've been in precious metals investing markets since 1970. i've been a beneficiary of three silver bull markets a- and a silver bull market is truly a spectacular feat okay. to behold. When silver moves, it moves so far so fast that if you worked in place, you run a substantial danger of missing most of it. Uh, it would be useful not for the readers of the Northern Miner who are of my vintage, but rather the younger vintage, if we have time to discuss some history. In the 1970s market, the silver ran from, if my memory serves me well, a buck and a quarter US to 50 dollars and the silver stocks were even more responsive. One little company, Coeur Mines, which of course I was too poor in 1970 to buy, went from 10 cents to $65. Right, right. The next bull market in silver was somewhat more muted. The silver ran from $4 to $60. But the price action on the stocks was the same. What is amazing about silver, and I can't tell you why, I can just tell you that, in a precious metals bull market, after gold leads, when the narrative is established and the momentum is established, because I think of the lower unit price associated with silver, the second half of a precious metals bull market is usually led by silver. Okay. And the market capitalization of the silver equities, right. I know this, is so small, mm-hmm. that when the generalist capital comes into the silver narrative, the combined market capitalization is isn't leverage. big enough to I'm, hold the money.
4: Okay. Right, right. I, I've
5: benefited from that three times in my life. Right. I'm 70. Okay. I'd like to benefit one more time.
4: Excellent. Great. Thank you very much. I think that's that's it. Good conversation. Thank you.
0: And finally, another interview from Ame Roundup that I want to cover last week. Andy Verst, global chief geoscientist with Barrick Gold, spoke with Henry Lazenby at Ame Roundup, and he discusses how there is a critical shortage of geoscientists, and that this could hamper the ability of companies to search, and Extract green energy metals. Again, they're at AME Roundup in January, interviewed by Henry Lazenby.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Northern Miner, coming to you live from the AME BC exhibition floor. Joining me is Andy worst Global Chief Geoscientist with Barrick. Andy, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andy. In your presentation yesterday, You showed us a lot of statistics about a drastic decrease in the number of geoscientist graduates coming through the pipeline. Could you perhaps just recap to us briefly what this means for the industry?
6: Yeah, so Henry, in the last seven years, since 2014, there's been a drastic uh, decrease in geoscience uh, enrollments in uh, universities in Canada and also globally. That means we will not have the amount of geoscientists we need going forward as we build um, to requiring more metals with the electrification age we need more copper we need we need uh, more metal underpinning that requirement for increase in in metals is geoscience it's the basic thing around discovering metals around extracting them around reclaiming the mine sites so we need geoscientists to underpin you know the growing demand for metals so really we're socially it's a huge of huge importance and we don't have these uh, new graduates coming into the system or coming out of the system which is a is a huge concern as a not only for our community but also as a as a, as a as a as a society we should be worried about this so
1: am i correct in understanding that geoscientists really underpin almost every facet of Barrick's business
6: yeah absolutely we in barrick geoscience is at the core of our business and it's the thing that we go to in everything in exploration uh, mineral resource management is at the key of everything we do in managing our ore bodies, and the value, uh, risk in terms of uh, risk and opportunities in those ore bodies, as well as in the in the in the closing stages when you're closing the mine as well. Mm. So at uh, Barrick, our, our CEO is actually a geologist; he's a PhD geologist. So for him, geology is, is super is the most important part of of mining value, and often often yeah. says that. And so geoscience is is at the core of, of Barrack and all the decisions uh, we make yeah. So bodies.
1: Yeah, so you've mentioned the word risk a little bit, so could you just elaborate a little bit more about how geoscientists really act as a risk mitigator?
6: Yeah, so geoscience, you're basically dealing with rocks and materials. It's a very variable material, so geoscientists have to understand those materials because they have such a large amount of variability, so to understand them, you want to have a lot of data to understand them so you can predict what's going to go on with that material. If you can't predict it, anything that's unpredictable is very risky. The more unpredictable, the more risky it is. So the more you can predict it with geoscience data, the more you're able to monitor what's going to happen exploration-wise, whether you're going to discover something, whether you're spending lots of money to discover something. It's a probability game. But if you can be very good at the geoscience, you're going to find something quicker and more efficiently. In the mine environment, if you're monitoring the value of the blocks that are coming out, the way you extract, if you're getting maximum extraction of the minerals out of the rock, um, the geoscientist is there to work that out so you can actually maximise recoveries and also avoid things like pit-ball failures and other things that are also geoscience risk. Geotechnical risk comes from that as well Mm -hmm. and in the closing stages obviously how those those materials are going to react and how you're going to deal with them in mine closures. So at every single point in the value chain, geoscience is managing that uh, that risk component through understanding the data and understanding the rocks and understanding the minerals.
1: Mm. Now ostensibly I'm sure you didn't come here to tell us just about the challenge and the problems we face. There must be a solution to the situation. What is Barrick specifically doing to address the shortage of geoscientists coming through?
6: Yeah, It's a, it's a good point. So we, um, we sponsor a number of universities that we actively are on boards of and we we work with students, our new uh, graduates. We have our own internal training program as well. We uh, come to events like this to talk to talk to students who are involved in the student event tomorrow night. But I think it's a much more bigger question than what Barry can deal with. it. We have to. It comes to a government a, at a government level and an institution level. We have to bring geology in to into schools, probably at a high school level. The amount of geologists that I talked to, and they said, "Oh, you know, I became a geologist first year uni because I'd never heard of it before." And I did geology and I loved it. I get paid to uh, you know, I get go, paid to go out in the bush, I get paid to amazing countries and be, meet amazing people. So they didn't have that opportunity. So we have to bring geology in much sooner to expose students earlier, to actually bring them in so they have that as an option. At the moment, a lot, there's a massive amount of students that are going in, obviously things like Google and AI and technology. But at the end of the day, those things won't solve the issues of geoscience. People think they will, but you still need geoscience to understand I, I, I liken the analogy to airplanes so jets and jet engines gee, have a lot of data, data coming from their jet engines all over the planet and they can basically you hear the story that they can fly themselves mm. but at the end of the day there's still a pilot up front there's still a human up front and it's the same thing with us we can do a lot with AI and with the data coming in from mines and drill things but at the end of the day you still need that geologist there who's like the the guy who's going to be the watchdog on the on the ask the right questions what do I need to know and ask for the right data and spot the wrong data. So,
1: yeah, and I guess it all comes back to the imperative the mining industry really um, has to educate everybody about the importance of mining right?
6: Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's it's raising that profile that actually a geoscientist is is more it's more important for global warming than anything else. We need all this copper to build electric cars. So, but. You know, in the past there's been a, a negative context of mining in the industry but it's actually the reverse now. We, we actually are hugely important in that social, social remit for the, to fix global warming so it's much bigger than my mining company or, or this industry event. It's actually a, a social global thing that we have to have geoscience going to find the next ore bodies and extract them efficiently and do it properly so for the better, for betterment of society and countries and, and every, everything that's involved in that.
1: Okay, are there perhaps any other important points maybe from your presentation that we should talk about?
6: Um, I think it's really important, another statistic that's really interesting and really important is that traditionally one industry has been a very male-dominated um, industry and what we've seen is in the last 10 years is, is a real uptick in, in female geology enrolments, so it's going from a very low level of 10%, now it's up around 50%, which is really really encouraging for our industry that diversity is increasing. At Barrett we, we, like, we employ mostly nationals in all our countries um, to keep that, keep that diversity. So,
1: May I perhaps finally just ask you to elaborate a bit on why diversity is important for the mining context?
6: I think for uh, just everyone's different views and, and the different, it's, it's hugely important because we are such a culturally diverse group. We have to deal, in Barrett we have many countries that we work in and deal, and every, every, all of them are, are different in culture, so having the diversity within your own group allows you to understand and have that empathy for the groups that you work with and and work with, I think. Having diversity is super important.
1: Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate that. Thank you, Henry. Cheers.
0: And I hope you enjoyed those beautifully brief interviews from Frick Ells and Henry Lazenby. They did a wonderful job at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference and at AME Roundup. And again, coming up in a week, the Global Mining Symposium with another all-star cast. Just go to events.northernminer.com to sign up. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.